Now, I have up here a word cloud, as they call it, of just some words of things that we would um, think about as a part of our lives. And so I just let the word cloud make some of them bigger and smaller. And some of these things are tangible, some are intangible. A house, grandchildren, golf clubs, Calvary Community Church, Attitude Earth, sex life, trees, boat, socks. You look at this and um, these are the things that are a part of our lives. And as, we, as you look at that and maybe you look at some of the smaller things, ask yourself, who owns this stuff? Who owns this stuff? We often call it ours. We say, this is, this is mine. And, and uh, some of these things seem more important than other things. But who owns this stuff? I even have on that word cloud, if you look close enough, it has Dodger tickets. And some of you might have said Friday night, yeah, Dodger tickets. I own those or I'd like to own those. Uh, maybe Friday night you didn't feel that way. Uh, maybe you feel a little better today about that. But Look at those things up there and ask yourself about those things that are part of your life. Who owns that? Because ultimately, the scriptures say, it's his, not ours. It's his, not ours. And that he is the owner of everything, and we are the managers of the stuff he puts into our care that he blesses us with. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. By creation, everything is God's. Everything you see on this planet, everything you see from this planet, everything is God's by creation. We know that because of the fall, the creation is groaning and waiting for the day that it will be completely restored. We even know that we as human beings, because of sin that entered into the human race, are separated from God, and that as beings who have been created by him that are now separated from him, we face a Christless eternity. But then we learn something very important about how we're not only gods by creation, but as human beings, we can be gods by redemption. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. My very being, yes, God created me, so I'm part of creation, but Jesus died for me. We just sang about it. He paid our debt. He was raised from the grave so we could have life. He paid the debt we owed because of our sin and none of us, can pay that debt. We all fall short of who God is. But when we come to that place, we understand our debt before him spiritually, and we realize that God paid the price in the sacrifice of his son on the cross of Calvary, and we look at the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and we put our trust in Christ, we then are not only his by creation, but by redemption. And there's something sweet and special of being his children now and forever when we know that we've been rescued as we put our faith in the one who paid the debt for us. If you're here today and you know Jesus, then you're his by creation and redemption. If you don't know Jesus, you're his by creation, but there is a judgment coming. But Jesus paid the debt, so you don't have to experience that judgment. Put your faith and trust in the one who died, was buried, and rose again for you. We have care team members who will be down front after the service. They're there each week to pray with you. You'll see the phone number at the end where you can contact the pastor if you're joining us online. I'll be on the patio, can speak to you. But also, if you have questions about putting your faith in Christ, or today's the day you put your faith in Christ, you want to celebrate that, you can speak to any of those folks I've just mentioned. But you can also text the name Jesus to the number that's below me on the screen. And whether you're joining us online for worship at home, uh, you're watching us while this is taking place or during the week or after this, 
uh, or you're in the room, you text the name Jesus to that number and we'll follow up with a link that will give you resources to know what it means now to live as God's children, the ones he, he, he has redeemed and brought into his family. And then we'll follow up and make sure you know personally what it means to walk with Jesus. But everything about our lives, everything that's a part of it, whether it's the words, the attitudes, the, the car, the house, the golf clubs, the knitting needles, the, the marriage, the children, the grandchildren, the, the finances, it's all God's, not ours. And this is, this is the stewardship, the responsibility God gives us. We've been talking about uh, the spiritual practices of the Christian life. Now this is the 10th week of 12 where we're looking at these spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. And today we look at the spiritual practice or discipline of stewardship, of managing God's stuff. Spiritual practices are intentional behaviors, habits, or disciplines that help us walk with God and be transformed into the likeness of Christ. They, they posture us and put us in a place where the Spirit of God can change us and mold us and make us more like Jesus. We've looked at some of these, worship, engaging with God in Scripture, prayer, confession, community, serving. Pastor Brian Howard did a great job last week talking about listening to God, listening to others. And today we talk about stewardship, understanding how God owns everything and we are his managers, his stewards. You see, right now I'm responsible for this stuff in my life, but there's a day coming when I'm going to stand before God. Every one of us will stand before God and will be accountable for how we managed his stuff. Jesus makes it very clear that we're to be stewards. You see, the practice of stewardship is seeing everything in my life as God's, not ours or mine, and then choosing to leverage it for the good of others and the glory of God. Everything, my words, my attitude, my stuff, my finances, my relationships, everything in my life is to be leveraged for the good of others and the glory of God. And to see it not as, okay, 90% of it's mine, 10% is God's, 50-50, or we share 100%, but it's God's. He owns it, we're responsible for it, and the owner one day will call us to be accountable for how we use that which he put into our lives. As I mentioned, Jesus emphasized this. He emphasized it in a story in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. He talks about how the boss goes to three managers. He gives the first manager five bags of gold, gives the second one two bags of gold, the third one one bag of gold. He says, I'm going on a trip. When I come back, I want you to have managed these resources well. So the scripture says, as Jesus tells the story, that he's gone a long time. And when the boss comes back, he goes to the managers, and the first one had been given him five bags of gold, gives him 10 in return. He'd invested it. He'd managed it well. The second one, who had been given two, gives him four. He's managed it well. The third one, however, has only the one bag of gold because he made a hole and, and put the bag in the hole and buried it. And Jesus says the first two were rewarded because they were responsible and they leveraged what the boss had given them. But the third one had squandered his responsibility to manage the boss's stuff well. And in our walk with Jesus, we need to understand that whatever we have, we're to manage it well for God's glory and the good of others. I want us to see three angles of our stewardship, our being the managers of God's stuff. The first one is what we heard in the Camp 54 video. 
the first angle is how we are stewards as his image barriers. This is about us as human beings made in the image of God, distinct from every other creature in creation. What are our responsibilities just as human beings to the God who created us, whose image we bear? Well, the first one is the care of creation. This was early on. In Genesis 1, we're told that we have authority over all of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, as man is created and put in the garden, we read in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We are responsible for creation. We are to be the caregivers of the planet. Now, why is that? Well, Romans chapter one says, because creation shows us the existence of God, the power of God, the beauty and creativity of God. You're not gonna get the details that you'll get in the written word of God by looking at creation, the whole story of God, but you are gonna know that he is powerful, he exists, and he is beautiful. The, the psalmist said it this way, the heavens declare the glory of God. When you look at a sunset, you look at the stars, you look at a beautiful landscape, you look at great creatures of this planet, you see the very glory of God. It paints a picture of who he is. And we as God's people ought to be concerned when this planet is not being treated well. I remember uh, growing up in northern Indiana, we would go just about 45 minutes away into the southwestern corner of the state of Michigan. We lived about 10 minutes from the border and we'd go to the beach there in, in uh, the southwest corner of Michigan on Lake Michigan. And uh, there were just, it was called Warren Dunes, some beautiful sand dunes along that great lake. And uh, one of them was called Tower Hill. And we'd run up this hill. And remember, I grew up in a very flat area. Everywhere I went, everywhere I looked was flat, flat, flat. And I remember Tower Hill. I thought it must be like the Himalayas or the Rockies, you know. And I was thinking about it this morning. It was about as high as standing on this floor and going to the highest point up there, the last row in the worship center. And it, today, that doesn't seem very tall to me, especially the mountains we see around us all the time. But back then, that was a, it was very hot sand in the summer to climb Tower Hill. But you'd conquer that by you know, us flatlanders taking the top of that towering mountain. But then we go down to the beach. And I remember going down to the beach, and it would stink. Lake Michigan smelled in the 70s and early 80s. And there would be dead fish floating on Lake Michigan, these little fish. And birds would have plucked out some eyes and some other aquatic creatures would have eaten things. And so these are half fish, they're rotting away. And so you get in the wonderful water there on the beach and come back up and there's a fish right here. And then you look over here and there's like a little bit of slick chemicals or oil on top of the lake. And there was a season there where the Great Lakes were awful with chemicals and stench and death. And then about 10 years ago, after having gone there a lot in my childhood, and not having been there for about 25 years, we took our kids with my dad and we went to Warren Dunes. We climbed uh, the, the Tower Hill and then we went to the beach. I was kind of preparing my kids, hey, there's rotting fish, you're gonna see oil slicks and chemical stuff and stench. And we got there, it was all gone. It had been cleaned up over the years. And the water was blue and there wasn't the stench. And, there was something beautiful about that. It ought to grieve us as God's image bearers when his creation is marred. 
You know, on September 30th, as I was driving to the office here, there was an announcement made in the news that there were 22 species of birds and fish and plants and trees that had gone extinct, one of them being uh, the uh, ivory-billed woodpecker that was prominent in the southeast, even in the Gulf states, pretty prominent, but now hasn't been seen in over a couple of decades anywhere in the wild believed to be extinct, there ought to be something in us as image bearers, as God's children, where we say that grieves us. Now, some of you say, whoa, pastor, you know, are you going to be, are you going to be preaching global warming? And I get people asking me, do you embrace global warming? Are you a a denier of global warming? I, I say this, I don't need that research. I don't need to have a position on any of that. I have this mandate from God as an image bearer to be someone who cares for creation. Why? Because it shows the beauty and dignity of God. But secondly, because if you understand creation from a biblical worldview, you also understand that there is a creator and this is his creation, his gift to humanity. That humanity is made in his image. We are not like any other creature. We have an eternal soul, and we are distinct and different, and when we understand that, a part of creation care is caring for the value of human life. So that means we believe in the sanctity of life from conception forward. That means we believe in dignity and equality, and so that means that we, we really understand that every human being, no matter who they are, is made equal in the image of God and need, needs to be treated with that same equality. It means we view human life distinctly and differently. And then we understand that God gave us this as a resource for us as human beings to thrive and to grow and for our well-being. And so what emerges in our current noisy polarization is one side that's that's saying the planet is really what we need to preserve and, and rescue, and we need to focus on that, and that humanity and all the animals are just the same, and that is not what the Scriptures say. We get to the point on one side where we worship, as Romans 1 says, the creation or the creature over the creator. And so we will harm human beings to to deal with the issues of environment and planet, and that is an extreme. That's not the biblical worldview for us as image bearers. But the other extreme is where we say, we don't care what plastic does to the oceans. We don't care about the fish. We don't care about what goes extinct. We don't care about what the water is like because what really matters is one day it's gonna all burn up and there's gonna be a new heavens and a new earth so God doesn't care. Baloney, that's another false extreme. We ought to wrestle over issues that deal with the environment and the planet. It's part of God's stewardship to us as his image bearers. So creation and the care of creation is a part of our stewardship when we walk with God. Secondly, there is the common good of humanity. The common good of humanity, where we care about the well-being of other people, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends. The common good of humanity has been lost in social media today, I think. You know, Christianity was the champion of the common good of humanity so that people would be able to exist and thrive and flourish as human beings. Christianity did a lot about education around the world and medicine and medical advancements and and so much, And, and yet that's being lost today that we are to be a part of the common good of humanity. 
In Micah 6, 8, we read, he has shown you, O mortal or human being, here's part of your responsibility as the image bearer of God, what is good for you as human beings. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What do those three things mean? Well, they're part of the common good that as human beings, we should look out for and regularly be engaged in the best for people that nobody else cares about. That's to act justly, to do right for people who maybe are marginalized or pushed to the fringes, who are locked down upon or segregated against, people who are identified by broader culture as being pushed to the fringes. In, in the understanding of this is that we constantly and regularly are trying to do right toward those who others don't care about and push to the fringes. But then it says to love mercy. Now, mercy means you don't give someone what they deserve. You know, of all the people on the planet, we ought to be eagerly and passionately forgiving other people and getting rid of grudges. Christians should not be the least forgiving and the deepest holder of grudges. We should be the people of second and third and fourth chances. That's to love mercy. That means we give people a break even when they don't deserve it at all. And that's a part of the common humanity. Then to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. I've known a few people that I would say, he walks with God humbly. She is so humble before the Lord. You know what I notice about their lives? That when that's true about their relationship with God, they don't have arrogance and pride and hubris and selfishness in how they deal with their neighbors and how they talk online and how they interact with coworkers. These are people who are selfless because when we walk humbly with our God, then we have a humility that we carry with us in life. And that is good for the, the common good of humanity. We need to wrestle with issues. We, we tend to be so categorically this and that and this and that, and we ought to wrestle more before God on some of the things that seem so black and white to us. Let me bring out my mask here. You know, these things that have bothered us and bugged us, and we at Calvary have tried to find a principled way to deal with this and bring some unity and harmony so we haven't tried to take any extreme position. And if you're comfortable wearing them, great. We recommend them. Uh, we ask our volunteers and others to wear them. But about a year ago, probably in June or July of 2020, I had traveled to some other states where you could go in places and not have to wear these as much. And I kind of came back to California and had to wear them in places. And I got a bad attitude. And I started praying about it to the Lord. And I said, Lord, you know, this mask is it's just so divisive and stupid. And I know there are some medical issues and there's some liberty issues. I'm talking about the heart issue we have with these things. And you know, I was just saying to the Lord, what, what, am I, what do we do with this, Lord, as leaders? And what do we do with this as a person? And my attitude, I was, I was wearing it only if people demanded I wear, wore it. And I said, what about these masks? And the Lord just sort of convicted me. And he said, um, you know, my son set aside his divine rights and didn't put on a mask. He put on humanity, human flesh, to come to you for your good. Maybe you should be willing to have a spirit that would put this on even if it's uncomfortable, even if you don't like it, set aside some of your rights for the common good of somebody else. Wow. Since then, I found myself putting this on in places where it's not demanded, just because I think, well, maybe somebody in that setting, it might be, and if I get into this close environment, and 
the Lord's been working on my heart regarding this. Again, I know there are liberty issues. I know there are medical issues. I'm not dealing with that. I'm dealing with what most of us have when it comes to a problem with this. One way or the other, whatever our view is, it's a heart issue. Jesus was willing to put on human flesh to come for our good. We should be willing to, to, to put a lot on, to, to do a lot for the good of our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. There's the common good of humanity that we should be stewards of. Thirdly, there's the story of God in the next generation. The story of God in the next generation. Right from Adam and Eve, they were told to go, multiply, fill the earth. There was conversation from God as he walked with the earliest of human beings recorded in Scripture that they should tell the story of their relationship with God to their children. Their children should tell it to their children. That's part of our responsibility as his image bearers, as human beings. In Psalm 78, 4 through 6, we read, We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statues for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then you see in scriptures, in a biblical worldview of how we tell the story of God from one generation to the next, it's to be, according to Deuteronomy 6, not something where we say, we sent them to church, we sent them to this Christian setting or this Christian school, or we sent them to this, and that's where they got the story of God. But actually, Deuteronomy 6 says that we as parents, when we're rising up and we're sitting down in the everyday ways of life, need to be pointing our children to God and telling the story of God with our grandchildren as a way of life, not, not a formal program, the programs of the church and the different ministries and the school or the whatever God gives you the opportunity to be a part of, those accent what you're doing in the home. And, and one of the core things that we need to work on in our marriages is a healthy marriage because the best gift you can give your kids is a healthy, vibrant, godly marriage. You say, but I'm a single parent. What am I going to do? The great news is there's a promise in Scripture that God will step in and be the parent to the parentless. And that God will even use the church, the body of Christ, the local church, to help in that. And I think God gives a special blessing there. But if, if you're married, work on a healthy, vibrant marriage. It's the best gift you can give your kids. Recently, I was reminded in our parenting, the goal isn't to raise godly children. It's to be godly parents. You can't control all the decisions. And some, some of you think, well, if I do this, 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 and follow this formula, all my kids will always... It's not the case. Ask God. He put Adam and Eve in the garden and told them one thing. Don't do it. They did it. <laughs> but what we can do is we can walk with God ourselves and through our lives tell the story of God to the next generation so they can tell the next generation so they can tell the next generation you know, I'm going to stand before God one day as God's child. Forget that I'm a pastor, but I'm Sean, a child of God. And he's going to say, Sean, I gave you the gift of creation. How'd you manage that for me? I put in your care the common good of humanity, your neighbors and others around you. How'd you manage that for me? What was your attitude? I, I, I gave you kids in your home, and maybe one day he'll bless us with grandchildren. He'll say to me, what did you do in telling the story of God to the next generation? You see, that's the spiritual discipline of stewardship as we think about that, we take that seriously, that this is all God's, I'm a steward of it, and I need to leverage it for the good of others and the glory of God. 
There's a second way in which we need to think about our stewardship as his image bearers, but also as a part of his church, as his church. And I'm talking about church big C, the church of Jesus Christ all around the world. Anyone who knows Jesus, who's a follower of Christ and been born from above, born again. And then I'm talking about how we're supposed to function in local church settings. And I know some of you have found that hard because of different circumstances in your life and aren't able to be back on campus, but we need the local church. We need to be a part of the local church because it's us together in the local church setting, even like here at Calvary Community Church, where we fulfill the mission and mandate of God for us as the people of God on this planet. And so then I have a responsibility, not just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm an individual follower of Christ. What's my part in this? And then I have the added responsibility. I recognize this, like others of our elders and pastors, we have that steward of more the whole, but we all are to steward the responsibilities God gives us as a church. I think one of the first ones is to go back to the very most basic thing, and that is the great commandment. We're to live in obedience to the great or greatest commandment. In Matthew 22 and verse 36, a religious leader is trying to trip up Jesus, and he says to Jesus, you know, with all the hundreds of laws and commands in the Old Testament, Jesus, which is the greatest? And he's hoping Jesus will say something, he'll tick off these people, and he'll say something, he'll tick off those people, and so he's trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't know what the greatest commandment is? The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love God with all you got. Every morning we get up as followers of Jesus Christ, our heart's passion should be to love God with everything we've got. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, you didn't even ask me, Jesus said, but I'm giving you the second. Once you love God with all you got, and that's your drive and your passion for the day, then second, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Once you love God with all you got, then love the neighbor and if you read the life of Jesus, he includes your enemies, people you don't like in that neighbor category, the coworker who irritates you and rubs you the wrong way. Notice what he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything else about our lives before God, hang on loving God with all we've got and loving our neighbors as ourselves. So one day, God's gonna to say to me, Sean, did every morning you get up and love me with all you had? And then did you love your neighbor, even your enemies, as you naturally love yourself? See, in obedience to the Great Commission, it's about loving God and loving others. Loving God and loving others. And my heart breaks that I think in our world today, the Church of Jesus Christ is not known for either of these two things. We're known for shouting and, and declaring and arguing. Do your neighbors and your coworkers know that your passion every day is to love God with all you got and to love the people around you as you love yourself? Or do they know your political posture, your political position? Then there's the fulfillment of the Great Commission the fulfillment of the Great Commission. After we get that, oh, my drive every day is love God with all I got and love the people around me as much as I love myself. Then there's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. When Jesus had completed his mission on earth, he'd been crucified, buried, and raised. Now it's 40 days later, he's been appearing to the disciples, and he says, now I'm gonna go to be with my father, and someday I'm gonna come again and gather you to myself, but while I'm gone, I want you 
to hear the mission and mandate I have for you. He commissioned them to go out and to represent him. Those 12 disciples that he gathered. And, and, and what does he say to them? Well, Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, while you're going out into the world and people are coming to Jesus, he says, make disciples. Help people follow me. See them come to Christ and grow in Christ and become like Jesus more and more every day. Make disciples of all the nations, not just America, not just Israel. He says, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they identify with God and God's mission, God's Son, God's plan. And then he says, and then teach them. In discipling you, teach them to follow the things I've taught, the commands I've given. He said it this way in Acts 1.8, that they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit and they'd become witnesses unto him in Jerusalem, Judea, the surrounding area, and the Samaria where it was partially Jewish, partially Gentile, and then to the ends of the earth. And he, he says that the Holy Spirit will help you take this message there. You see, the heart of the Great Commission is proclaiming the gospel, the sweet, sweet gospel of Jesus, that we're all sinners, but Jesus paid the debt. We're all dead spiritually, but Jesus conquered the grave to give us life, the sweet, sweet good news of how we can have a relationship with God through his son. It is sweet, sweet, refreshing, good news. We're to be proclaiming Christ and one of my fears is the church today is not known for the good news anymore. It's about this political position and this social posture and this cause and things that can be good, but it's not Jesus anymore. And we need to be about Jesus proclaiming the good, wonderful, sweet, incredible, awesome good news of Jesus. A message of hope and love and grace and making disciples. I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Jesus. As I walk with Jesus, like Paul did, I'm saying to you as your pastor, follow me as I follow Jesus. That's what we're saying to others. Follow me as I follow Jesus. We're disciples making disciples so that others can come to Jesus and live in love like Jesus too. Making disciples. I have people always saying to me, well, yeah, pastor, that's good, but shouldn't we also be doing this and shouldn't we be doing that? And in the last 18 months, I've said more in my 30 years of ministry, that isn't our mission, that isn't our mandate. When people say, well, don't you, don't you think you should endorse this candidate? Don't you should think you should get this political? Don't you think you should join this social cause? Just like when it comes to creation, we have something that calls us to something much higher than any of that. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to make disciples who live in love like Jesus as they live in obedience to God's word and are transformed by the spirit of God. If you want to see the world changed and turned upside down, preach Jesus and make disciples. And if you're thinking that, Sean, you need to get more political, I'm not going to get more political. I'm not going to endorse any candidates. I have strong political views too, but you're not going to know what they are. And here's what's going to happen. When we teach the Bible, sometimes you're going to think I'm a liberal and sometimes you're going to think I'm a conservative because no party has it right. Only Jesus, only Jesus understands the issues of the sanctity of life. And so when you preach Jesus and you make disciples, 
who begin to live in love like Jesus, guess what? They begin to affect the vote. They begin to affect the culture. Guess what happens? Things change. And when we preach Jesus and we make disciples, guess what? Something happens. You know what happens? It's the third responsibility we have. It's the spreading of the great kingdom. So we've got the obedience to the greatest commandment, the fulfillment of the great commission, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and making disciples, and there's the spreading of the great kingdom. In Luke 17, another religious leader tries to trip up Jesus. And the religious leader says, oh, you talk about this kingdom. Show us, we got the Romans on top of us, Jesus. You show us God's kingdom. What will it look like? And Jesus says, look, he says in verse 21 of Luke 17, you're not gonna say there it is, here it is, there it is, this is it, this is it. He said, it's already in your midst. I am here and as I unleash my disciples and more and more people come to me as savior, this is a movement that is my kingdom and it doesn't look like what you're looking for and my kingdom is upside down and doesn't make sense to this world. When the disciples didn't get that and they're saying, who's gonna be in charge in your kingdom, Jesus? He said this in Matthew 20, 25 to 28, Jesus called them together, the disciples, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It's about positions of power and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know it's about the top down. So it is not gonna be with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now get this. When we get up every morning and say, I'm gonna love God with all I've got, and I'm gonna love everybody around me as I love myself. And I am gonna share the sweet good news of Jesus Christ and help make disciples as a part of God's church in this community, as I do that, I'm gonna start serving people. You see, he, his kingdom is upside down. It doesn't make sense. In the human understanding of things, the way to end abortion, systemic racism, the objectification of women and men in pornography, the way to end sexual immorality and human trafficking and all of the problems of corporate greed and lust and pride and arrogance, the way to end all of that stuff comes through his kingdom values being lived out in his children. And he doesn't tell us to go get a position. You see, that person trying to trip up Jesus is saying, you say you're going to turn the world upside down, Jesus, and this kingdom is going to come. You don't have one position of power in this culture. You know, he never did. You know, the disciples never did. Now, it's not wrong if you're an elected official or you have a position of authority. God calls them even servants. But we don't have to have those positions to turn the world upside down. You know what we have to do? We have to get out a towel and a basin and start washing the feet of one another and the people around us. You see, his kingdom is strange. It's upside down. It's avoiding power and serving others. Oh, pastor, you're so naive. That's not how it works in the American culture and the American system. <laughs> Jesus said this is what works anywhere, everywhere, at all times. It's what works. His kingdom is spread through our lives. We don't need positions of power. People in their desperation in the church have mixed the message and the mission. We know how to explain why you should be woke or not woke to our neighbors better than we know how to share the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm saying this to you not out of anger, but out of a broken heart. That we are 
squandering the stewardship of the very gospel of Jesus and the thing that will not only build back better America or make America great again, but will build back better any nation and will make any nation great. And that is as people come to Jesus and their life is transformed, their family is changed, their neighborhood is transformed, their state is changed, their country is changed, and the world is turned upside down. And you don't need one position of power to have that happen. I have people say to me, but we gotta get back to historical Christian values. And, and I know, Pastor, we've got some things that are broken in our past as a country, and we gotta correct those too. And that's why we talk about make America great again or build back better. Here's the deal. That stuff didn't come, the good stuff, didn't come into our, our system because a few got power and pushed it down on others. It came out of the hearts of the people who were already aligned with it. How is that going to happen? Not through political convincing of people or ideological arguments. It's going to be through changed hearts and transformed lives. I had an older man in ministry tell me when I was young, this is now 30 years ago or more. That sounds like a long time. <laughs> he said, whenever you see the American church lose its mission and mandate and mix it up with something else, be it a social cause or a political cause, or get caught up in one party or the other or either party. He said, then you get your eyes back on what your partners around the world are doing. He says, what do you expect when you send money to other nations, to missionaries and national pastors and church planting movements? What do you expect them to do? We expect them to preach Jesus and make disciples. We don't say to them, make your country great again or for the first time. We don't say to them, build your country back better again or for the first time. You know what we say to them? Share Jesus, make disciples, and that'll change your nation. And he said, we, when we lose our way and we get sideways in the American church, we need to look at our partners on the world. Praise God through the last 18 months when I have grieved what I've seen in the church, in this church and other churches. I've had an opportunity to talk to our mission partners. I can't wait till I can travel internationally. I gotta go see what God's doing around the world. Friday, I had lunch with Pastor Peter. Some of you know him from Gaba Community Church in Kampala, one of our three or four missionary partners, partners there. Uh, we'll have the Bayamba pumpkin patch next week, different ministry, but they're working in the same area. And Pastor Peter leads African Rural Ministries and African Rural University, and we've sponsored some kids there through your generosity. But he was telling me as we've given them tens of thousands of dollars in the last two years to help people impacted hard in Africa and specifically in Kampala and around Uganda, they've been feeding people and we had a great time together. Forgive me that on the day the Dodgers played that first game Friday night, I was wearing my Cubs hat and sweatshirt. But you know what? I walked away from my conversation with Pastor Peter and I said, oh my goodness, this is, this is what it's about. Because he talked about how they're feeding people and helping people. And as they're doing that, those people are saying, why are you serving us? And they're saying, it's because of Jesus. And the people are coming to Jesus. We have a partner in Asia that I can't say its name, although I think I slipped and said its name in one of our services already. We used to be able to say the name of this country, but it's a country that's now closed and there's persecution but it's a country where we've partnered with a ministry that has 11,000 and growing church plants throughout this nation. They've been hit very hard by COVID. It's been devastating. And this week, a couple of us were on a, a Zoom, a couple of us as pastors with the leader of this ministry. And, and he was saying to us, tell your people God is at work. 
We're using the tens of thousands of dollars you're giving us, Sean, we're using it to feed people who are going to starve to death otherwise, people who have family members and friends dying of COVID all around them. And he said, we're, we're helping people with their health. We're, we're sending mobile clinics out. We're, we're getting vaccines to people in some of the areas that have been hardest hit where people are dying all over the place. And Sean, guess what? As we do that, we're doing it in Jesus' name. As we serve these people in the basic needs of life, as we wash their feet, so to speak, we're seeing people come to Christ. He said annually for the last four or five years up to COVID, we saw about 150 to 175,000 people come to Jesus through our 11,000 church plants. He said now, this last year alone, it was 650,000 people came to Jesus. They gained no power. As a matter of fact, in many ways, they went backwards in their country. But God is doing something. And the, the key for us as a church is to remember that we have a stewardship from God to love God with all we got, love our neighbors as ourselves, to preach the sweet, sweet gospel of Jesus, to make disciples, and then live out his kingdom values, serving others, and watch what God does with that. This older minister said to me, when the American church doesn't know what to do, it needs to realize that we're to be doing what we expect our partners around the world to be doing. It's nothing different. Different countries, our aim isn't to save or make anything out of one nation, although we love our nation, and I'm very patriotic and love the blessings we have in the United States. And the best way to save America is not politics, because the issue in America is not a political one, it's a spiritual one. It's not a problem in D.C. or in Sacramento, it's a problem in the human heart. The only thing that can change that is Jesus. And I know some of you are going to walk out and say, he's so naive. <laughs> My friends, this is the way of Christ. This is our stewardship and our responsibility. Thirdly, and I'll cover this one quickly, this gets down to us as individual followers of Jesus on a daily basis. As his image bearers, it's about caring for creation, the common good of humanity, sharing God's story to the next generation. As followers of Christ as a part of the bride, the church, it's about loving God with all we got and loving our neighbors every day. And then it's about sharing the sweet good news of Jesus and making disciples it's about spreading his kingdom by avoiding positions of power and serving those around us every day. But then, as individual followers, we, gotta, we have a responsibility to grow, mature, and flourish in Christ. That's what 2 Peter 3.18 and 2 Corinthians 3.18 say, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, to be changed in the image of Christ. Are you growing? I hope you've seen me grow in the last year and that a year from now, you could say, like, like Robbie said to me, <laughs> I've seen you grow. That's a good thing. I hope I'm more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. I'll be more like Jesus tomorrow than I was today because of my walk with him. We're to grow, mature, and flourish in Christ. That's our responsibility. We're to be controlled by and produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says to let the Holy Spirit have control in our lives. And when the Holy Spirit has control, what comes out of us will not be loud arguing online. will not be nasty comments back to people. What will flow out of the life controlled by the Holy Spirit? Here's what it says in Galatians 5, and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. That means if you live in a democracy or in a dictatorship under communism or any other form of government, guess what? Nobody can regulate the fruit of the Spirit. Look at that list. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you think Washington, D.C. could use that stuff? 
you think Sacramento could use that stuff? Do you think your cul-de-sac, your neighborhood, your office could use that? Who's gonna bring it there if we don't bring it there? It's us, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Do those words describe your online conversations, your discussions with your family? Families and churches and small groups are breaking up over this all around the country. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. This is. This is what we need. This will turn America around. This will turn the world around. It needs to be in our lives. Then we need to use our time, talents, and treasures for Christ and his kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, you want to know what you value? You want to know what's really important? You know where your heart is? Look at your checkbook, your credit card statement. Look at your calendar. Look at where you're spending your time and your money, and that'll tell you where God is on your priority list. That'll tell you where God is on your priority list. Jesus said that, not me. Fourth and finally, to change our world through transformed lives. Ultimately, what happens when when we take our responsibility seriously to grow in Christ, to be controlled by his spirit, to leverage our time, talents, and treasures for his kingdom work, to make sure that we're declaring Jesus as Savior and Lord and making disciples, what happens? Then we become, as Matthew 5, 13 through 16 describes, we become salt and light. I have people say to me, Pastor, we've got to get into this social cause. We've got to get into this political thing because then we'll be salt and light. No, we've got to make disciples. If that leads us into some of those places and pockets, then we'll be the salt and light. Then we'll be the salt and light. And oh, our world is in darkness. It's looking for something that tastes good, that's different. And we're the ones who are here to be that. Let me just give you some quick next steps. Some quick next steps. The first one is get five post-it notes. Five post-it notes. And uh, take those post-it notes and um, put on it, God owns this. And then put it on your microwave, put it on your dashboard, put it on the door of your house, put it on your kid's forehead. (laughs) God owns this, not me. I'm the manager of this, right? Put it on your lips. The words that come out of my mouth, God owns these words, not me. And then commit yourself afresh to your local church and invest your time, talents, and treasures there. And I say that because there are some folks who join us online that are part of another local church, somewhere even in the country. But invest in, engage in what your local church is doing. If you call yourself a part of Calvary, whether you're online or, or here in the room, engage in what God is doing here. Look what he's doing through fourth and fifth graders and in their lives. Be engaged in that. And each day this week, ask God to reveal the things in your life you've not truly seen as his. Maybe it is your attitude. Maybe it is your mask. Maybe it is the ocean. Maybe it is a bird. Maybe it is the gospel. Maybe it is serving others. What is it you say? That's not truly yours, Lord. That's mine to do with what I want. Ask him to reveal those things in your life because it's all his. And we grow and become like Jesus when we practice the, the, the discipline of stewardship where we say it's his, not mine or ours. It's his and I'm going to leverage it for the good of others and the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, you know my heart that comes to this place is heavy because the world knows everything about the church other than Jesus. The world today sees us more as a political movement than a spiritual movement. There's no distinction in how we treat other people. The fruit of the Spirit has been lost in many places. 
Help us, Lord. Thank you for those here at Calvary who've been faithful to shine for Jesus, to be the fruit, to be the light, to let the fruit of the Spirit be seen in their workplace, their neighborhood, online. And may we continue to be people so that we can see that problems in our culture, the problems in our world changed because of the power of the good news of Jesus Christ unleashed in this world through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.